instead, or read our scripture reading for us. Um, if you turn in the bulletin or turn to, um, if you brought a Bible, a phone, device, something, we're looking at Zechariah chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. It says this, in the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, son of Edo, saying, the Lord was very angry with your fathers. Therefore, say to them, thus declares the Lord of hosts, return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Do not be like your fathers, to whom the former prophets cried out, thus says the Lord of hosts, return from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. But they did not hear or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? But my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, did they not overtake your fathers? So they repented and said, as the Lord of hosts purposed to deal with us for our ways and deeds, so has he dealt with us. This is the word of the Lord. Well, for the summer, or I guess, I guess a big chunk of the summer, I'll say, we're going to be looking at and, and studying our way through the book of Zechariah. It's in the Old Testament. You may be hearing that and think, why? Why would he do this to us? Why, why, why would we do this? And um, here's how I want to try to answer that question. Uh, I don't know if you've happened to see the TV show The Office, but if you've seen it before... Um, there's an episode in which the company that everybody works for, Dunder Mifflin, is on the verge of bankruptcy. At least there's this, there these rumors that are floating around that the, that the company is going to fold. And so there's these, this fear, this anxiety that's kind of churning within the office. And everybody's refreshing their, their news feed. They're, they're, they're checking their email. They're looking for any sign of the, kind of this impending doom of this, this word of the, the fact that they might be losing their jobs. And so in the midst of this hysteria, in the midst of this panic, their, their manager, Michael Scott, says, I know what we need to do right now. We need to play a game. And so he goes to his office and he pulls out this box, and it's a murder mystery role-playing game where everybody, gets, everybody in the office gets a different character, gets a backstory, gets props. And so if you've seen it, and the, and the whole thing takes place in Savannah, so everybody has these Savannah accents. And uh, one, there's one character that gets played. It's Naughty Nelly. And uh, there's Voodoo Mama Juju. Um, uh, Michael Scott, the manager, plays Caleb Crawdad. And after he finishes saying anything, he says, I do declare. And um, so they're in the middle of this game. And the office is kind of getting into it. They're kind of following along. And they're, they're kind of like, they're, they're, they're doing it. They're playing the game. Except Jim. Jim, who is one of the employees, is so irritated. He's so stressed out. He's so freaked out by this, this scary news that's coming. And so he's getting more and more irritated with Michael. And at one point he snaps and, he, and, and they have this kind of private meeting in Michael's office. And you can tell Jim is about to just unload on Michael. And Michael turns and he stops and he snaps and he says, stop it. They need this. They need this. Let us have our stupid little game. They need this. And Jim's kind of freaked out by this. And he begins to realize as the kind of the episode goes on that as 
weird as this is, uh, he was right. That the, these people were in crisis mode. They were anxious. They were freaking out. And they needed this weird, bizarre thing to uh, help them, to help them cope. And so, and so in the end, he was right. Now, I, I bring this up because the book of Zechariah, the message of Zechariah is given in the middle of a crisis. And as you're going to see, if you stick around this summer with us, you're going to see this is a really weird book. It's very bizarre. It's very strange. But um, it's what God's people needed. It's what they needed to hear in a way that they needed to hear, even though they would never have thought this is what we need in this moment. And so you think, okay, well, what is, what is the crisis that's going on? Well, it's, it, it's, it shows up in verse 1. It's very clear. Verse 1, it says, In the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, the son of Edo. Very clear. And you hear that and you think, I, I'm one verse in and I'm already lost. Well, here's what's going on. When, it's, when it refers to Darius, that's referring to a Persian king, Persian ruler, and in order to know why that's important, you kind of have to understand a little bit of Israel's story, that the people of Israel were um, captured, invaded by this bigger nation called Babylon. Babylon came into their nation, they destroyed the temple, they killed a bunch of people, and a lot of the people that survived, they essentially took away to Babylon as captives. They were in exile. Now, Babylon eventually got invaded and taken over by this bigger nation called Persia. And when Persia took over, they said, hey, all of you Israelite captives, y'all can go back home. So the Israelite captives start to come back home, and they start to rebuild what is kind of the charred remains of their society. I mean, you think about something this devastating. This was a national trauma for them. They were uprooted from their life. Their, their whole sense of self, their whole identity and who they are in the world was totally thrown out of whack. And now they're back. And in the second year of Darius puts us about 520 BC. And they've been back for about 17 years and they've, they're slowly rebuilding society. You think it, it kind of reminds me of um, people who've been displaced by Katrina. You know, people in New Orleans were living there, and here comes this massive hurricane, and so everybody kind of begins to split town. Some people go to Houston, some people come to Memphis, a lot of people went to Atlanta. Hurricane blows through, and after a period of time, people begin to kind of go back to their city, and the city's a wreck. It's devastated, houses are destroyed, but you know, this is their home. And so they start this long, process of rebuilding, and that's the crisis of which we find the people of Israel, this rebuilding slow, and, and it's, and let me give you four features of this crisis to show you just how rough it really was. Here's the first feature. There was spiritual discouragement, because people showed, showed back up, and the temple wasn't really built, and in fact, it had been stalled out for about two years. And the temple was already small, and they look around, and they're like, this is what God promised us? That he was going to bring us back to our land and restore our fortunes, and the kingdom was going to come? And we're looking around, and this isn't it. This is not great. So they're spiritually discouraged. Here's the second feature. There's um, social fragmentation. 
because you have all these people that stayed in Jerusalem, and then you have all these people that were taken away, and when these two groups come back together after a long period of being apart, it creates some friction. There's tension. There's polarization. There's the, the, the whole community begins to be unstable. Here's the third feature. There's international tension. There was this uh, nation to the north called Samaria, and they did not want Israel and Jerusalem to kind of get rebuilt and strong again, and so they were proactively trying to stop it and mess with them and delay their rebuilding process, and so you've got heightened foreign affairs. And, and then here's the last thing. There's financial hardship that Jerusalem didn't have any natural resources, and so they're purely left to survive off of agriculture, which meant they were totally dependent on uh, weather and other conditions, and so they're just very vulnerable. And so into all of these multi-layered reasons, into this crisis, God sends this guy named Zechariah to deliver this message. And like the murder mystery thing, it's totally weird, it's totally bizarre, and yet that's exactly what these people needed. Now, you step back and you compare their situation back then with our situation right now, and you begin to see, oh my goodness, there's a lot of similarities. Think about those four things for yourself in the world that you occupy. Think about spiritual discouragement. Uh, it's, it's no, it, there, you know, there's all these stats about how the church is declining in the West. You think about our own city. You think about Memphis. And for the amount of churches that are in our city, the amount of Christians in our city, the amount of resources that we are dumping into our city, you might look around and think, gosh, I, I thought we'd be farther along than this. Is this the kingdom? This is it? Our city still, still feels like it's a mess. still feels like it's broken. And then you look at your own life, and maybe you're somebody who's been following Jesus for years, and you think, well, you know, Jesus said he, he, he came to give us life and life abundantly. I don't feel like I'm getting any of that. I feel like uh, I was, you know, given some false advertising. And so there's spiritual discouragement. What about um, social fragmentation? I mean, we know this well. We, we, we are, never, we are in, a, in a cultural moment that has never been more polarized than it is right now. Uh, Jonathan Haidt in the, um, wrote an article in The Atlantic a couple of weeks ago called Why the Past Ten Years of American Life Has Been Uniquely Stupid. It's a very, very fascinating read, very good read. But, but the premise of his article is, is that red America and blue America are, are functionally two different countries that are occupying the same territory. And these two different countries have different understandings of the Constitution, different understanding of economics, even a different understanding about our own American history. And these two different countries are constantly fighting, constantly at war, constantly debating everything from abortion to vaccines to gun control, all the things. Social fragmentation, we know it well. And what about the third feature? Uh, international tension. I mean, I don't have to tell you that there's like scary stuff happening on the world stage right now with Ukraine and Russia and China and North Korea and us and all, all of this stuff, it's scary. And then you think about, last thing, financial hardship. Elon Musk said this week, quote, I have a super bad feeling about the economy and just totally threw the Twitter world into a, you know, a tailspin. But you know, he's planning on cutting, or at least he said he's planning on cutting 10% of his workforce from Tesla. 
Now, regardless of what you think about that, uh, the reality is still the same, that, that you know, gas prices are crazy, cost of living is crazy, um, the housing market is bonkers. You, you put all of these things together, maybe you didn't realize how much you had in common with the people of Israel in 520 BC. But here, here's the point. This is a long-winded way of me trying to answer this question, why? Why are we looking at this book? Here's why. Because maybe we need the same thing that they needed. If into this crazy crisis that these people were living in hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years ago, they needed this book, then maybe we do too. Because we're living in a pretty crazy moment as well. So that's what we're going to do. For the, for, the, for the summer, we're going to kind of tiptoe our way through um, this, this book of Zechariah. And, and in this, as we kind of ease into this introduction, uh, there's this major theme that emerges, and it is this call for God's people to return. You see it in verse 3? He says, return to me. Verse 4, return from your evil ways. Verse 6 says, so they repented, but the word repented there is actually the same Hebrew word as the word return. I don't know why they translated it repented there instead of return, but that word keeps popping up over and over and over. So just two quick ideas for you this morning. What is the point of returning, and what is the promise of returning? So those are the two, those are the two ideas. What's the point? What's the promise? First, the point of returning. Well, it says in verse 1, the word of the Lord comes to Zechariah, and here's the message. Verse 2, the Lord was very angry with your fathers. That's why they were sent into exile in the first place, is because the Lord was angry with them. He was judging them. Now, why? Well, if you read through the Old Testament, the people of Israel, people who claimed to believe and obey the God of the Bible, participated in idolatry, in social injustice, in oppression, in hypocrisy. They were doing terrible, terrible, bad things. And God keeps sending them these prophets, these messengers, to basically say, stop. Please return. Get away from your evil and return back to me. But they wouldn't listen. They closed their eyes, plugged up their ears, and they kept doing their thing. And so, look at verse 4. This is why he says, Do not be like your fathers, to whom the former prophets cried out, Thus says the Lord of hosts, return from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. But they did not hear or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. So he sends prophets. They don't listen. So what does he do? He sends another prophet. Verse 3, therefore say to them, thus declares the Lord of hosts, return to me. That's the primary thing that Zechariah shows up to say, return to to God. Now, if you think about that, that's pretty shocking because here's this cultural moment with all of this national crisis, and the first thing that God says is he doesn't say, hey, the, the, the main thing that I want you to do is to rebuild the city. He doesn't say that the first thing you need to do is you need to uh, stabilize the economy. You need to strengthen the nuclear family. You need to... Um, you need to you know, build up your national security. He didn't say any of that stuff. He says the main thing, the first thing, the priority is to return to me. Turn your attention, turn your heart back to me. Which another way of paraphrasing that would be to say, come home. He's calling for his people to come home, which I think is really fascinating because it shows you that God doesn't just want something from you. 
He wants you. You know, this is a, I was thinking about this. This is a horrible uh, illustration. But if, if you had a, children, a, a child that, um, that ran away or, or was lost or something, you know, God forbid, and you're, you're, you're overwhelmed with anxiety, you, you don't know where they are, you don't know how to get in touch with them, and all you want in the world is for that child to come back. But why? Why do you want that child to come back? Is it so that they can come back and finish all their chores? Do you want that child to come back so they can complete their homework and turn it in on time? No, you just want that child back. You just want the child back in your arms. And that's what God is saying. Just return. I just want you back to me. There's this... um, story that I heard a number of years ago from a a pastor friend of mine. He told me this story about this woman named Lydia. I don't know if he knew her or if he just heard the story. I don't know. But the story goes is that this woman, Lydia, grew up in this small, religiously strict, rigid community. And it was hard for her. She felt oppressed by it, hated it. So the first chance that she had to get out, uh, she busted out and, and left and went down and moved to New Orleans and uh, got a job uh, working at a diner and got a boyfriend and the boyfriend got a job watching TV. And it was just kind of that scene where they were just kind of living a life and rebelling against her upbringing and uh, just kind of doing the wild thing and, and do, living the life that she probably thought she would never live. But, you know, eventually that, that, the intensity and, the, and the, the, the toll of that kind of lifestyle took its, uh, uh, took its toll on her. And so she moved back to uh, her hometown and didn't want to move in with her parents. There was too much friction there, too much tension. And so she just got an apartment. But she just was, you know, everybody in that small little community knew who she was, knew what she had done. They knew that she was that girl. So, you know, anytime she was walking around, they would, you know, she'd hear the whispers of like, oh, that's, you know, she's the one that rebelled. She's the one that broke out and like kind of did the crazy thing. And, and, And so... She's carrying around this public shame. Months go by. The parents invite her to come over for, you know, Thanksgiving. And uh, she's like, okay, what, what could it hurt? It's going to be awkward, but we'll do the awkward family thing. And so she goes and has Thanksgiving lunch or whatever, Thanksgiving dinner with her family. And they kind of push through the, the challenge of that, the relational tension of that. And they, uh, after dinner, she decides to just kind of walk around the house. And she's kind of just meandering through her old house as her childhood home and she's just kind of like looking back through all the things and she finds herself in the living room and sees all the knickknacks and pictures on the shelves and on the mantle and she sees this picture that's prominently featured on the mantle of her from from her high school graduation and at the bottom in big letters it says our dear Lydia at the bottom and as the story goes that was the moment that just broke her where she just Something inside of her melted. Something inside of her just moved to, to know this is how my family still feels about me. After me, you know, running away and kind of doing my own thing in, in, a, in a world that has a lot of um, judgment for me, th- this is my family's message to the watching world. She is our dear Lydia. In this house, she is our treasure. We are not ashamed of her here. She belongs to us. And it was that communication of love, that's what broke her. Don't you realize that's what God is doing in this passage? 
that he has, he, he is speaking to these people in their present condition, not their future condition. Their present condition, these people were living in filthy circumstances, impoverished circumstances. They were hungry. They were angry at God. They were frustrated. They were worn out. They were not put together. And God says, I want you. Return to me. He's speaking to our real selves, not our future idealized selves where all of our to-do lists are completed and our inbox is down to zero and our house is finally organized and we're finally exercising and we're finally eating healthy and we're finally happy. He's not relating to that version of us. He's relating to the real version of us, messy, discouraged, worn out, don't even know what to think about God, selves. And he says, I treasure you. I want you. That's why, he, that's why he's calling us to return. That's the point is so that he can have his child back in his arms. That's the point of returning. Now, secondly, you might hear all that and think, okay, um, it's been a long time since I've been around religious stuff. I don't know what that feels like. Um, maybe you're the kind of person who's been away and you're just now re-engaging with the faith maybe for the first time in decades. This may be the first time you find yourself in a church in a long time and you're wondering, okay, what, what, what will happen if I show up on God's doorstep as it were and I knock on the door? What, what am I gonna experience? What's the promise if I return? There's a... Um, Silver, famous civil rights activist named John Perkins, who you probably know the name, um, Christian minister. And in his book, Let Justice Roll Down, he tells his life story. And he, he tells the story of um, that his, his mom died when he was seven months old. His dad left him and his siblings uh, right after that. So his grandmother raised him and, and, and his cousins and his siblings uh, in the small town in Mississippi. I, I looked it up. It's three hours and 45 minutes from here. And w- when John Perkins was four years old, his dad came back for just one little moment. And here's how he describes it in this book. He says this, he arrived late one Friday night after I had fallen asleep. He woke me up and I saw him in the glow of the lamp. There was love in his face, love for me. He hugged me in strong arms and he talked to me. My daddy. It was a wonder I fell asleep at all that night. For the joy of belonging, of being loved, was almost more than my heart could hold. So when he said that he would be leaving, there was only one thing on my mind. I would go with him. I saw he was heading toward town, and I started following him. He turned, and he saw me following, and he said, go back, go back. The way he ordered me back sounded strange. I trailed him. He knew I was still there behind him because he came back a couple of times, I think, and he whooped me with a switch from a tree. Daddy, please, Daddy, take me with you. Don't leave me alone again. I reached toward him and wanted to run to him, but I was afraid. He still held that switch in his hand. I could only stand there and cry. I knew then that daddy was going away without me, but I still didn't turn back. So once more, he came back and whooped me a last time. Now, that, that's a terrible story for a lot of reasons. 
But here is why I share that with you, because I think so many times that's the fear of what it feels like to come back into God's presence. We have this fear of he's got a switch in his hand, he's ready to harm us, and he's moving away from us. He's distancing himself from us for whatever reason. But I want you to see what Zechariah says in this passage. Look at verse three. Here's the promise. Zechariah, God says to Zechariah, return to me and I will return to you. He doesn't say, if you come to me, I will say, go back. He doesn't have a switch in his hand. He says, I will return to you, meaning I will receive you. I will welcome you. I will embrace you. We even find out later in the, in the Bible, God throws a party when you return to him. Why? Because he loves you. Because he wants you to know, if you return to me, there is no fear. I will return to you. And I want you to notice, there are absolutely zero qualifications. He doesn't say, if you return to me and you feel bad enough for the life that you've lived, then maybe I'll return to you. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, if you return to me and you double down on your efforts to get religious and clean up your life and really start taking your faith seriously, then I'll return to you. It's so simple. Zero qualifications. Return to me. I'll return to you. Now, what does that look like? Um, Jesus said it this way in, in John chapter 6, verse 37. He says, whoever comes to me... I will never cast out. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For some of you, it might look like um, just showing up, just turning your attention, just turning your, 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 your heart towards him and saying, God, I don't know what to think about you. I don't know what to think about all of this. I still have questions. I still have a lot of issues. But I'm curious. I'm drawn to you. And so here I am. That's you just showing up in the authenticity and the honesty of where you are. Others of you, you, you may have been walking with Jesus for years, and uh, I don't know if you've ever had this experience where you, you have these moments where you um, realize that you haven't even, like, thought about God in, like, weeks. You know what I'm talking about? Where you're like, I, I, have, I, I ha certainly haven't, like, prayed or spent any time communing with him. I don't think I'm an atheist, but I've lived like one, I but I, I, I say that I'm a Christian, I want to be a Christian. You ever have these moments where you're like, I, you have these, you know, realizations, I haven't even prayed, I haven't even thought about him, and in those moments, it's so instinctual to just turn to shame, just turn to this place of, gosh, I'm like the worst, I'm the worst, I'm the worst Christian ever. But the invitation is not to turn to shame, the invitation is to turn to him, in all of your regret, in all of your shame, in all of your whatever, but to turn to him and show up, just to come home in the filth of who you are. That's the invitation. Both of our children, um, when they were young, were runners. I don't, I don't know if you know what I mean by that. I remember there's one time when our son was uh, at a playground, and you know he's like two. I took Reed to a playground. We're having fun. But what, what I mean by runners is a, a child is a runner when they have the thought go through their head, why would I play on this playground, which is nice and safe and family-friendly, when I could go play in traffic? And then they sprint towards the traffic. 
That's a runner. I know that some of y'all have runners because I've seen your kids out here and they're just like, where is, what can hurt me the quickest? I want to go there. And they run in that direction. Well, so I'm at the playground with Reed, two years old, whatever, however old he was. And, you know, you kind of get distracted and you look up and before you know it, he's like sprinting towards the traffic or, you know, whatever, as it were. And I'm calling out after him, Reed, stop! Reed, return to me. Come, Reed, come back. And he stopped and he turned, and he smiled, and then he turned back and ran towards the traffic. And it's, th- that is the picture of Zechariah chapter 1. God is saying, my people, I've been calling out to them, come back, come back, return to me, return to me, and they haven't listened. They keep running, and they keep bringing about needless pain into their life. And so as a parent, what do you eventually do? You stop calling, and you start running. So as a parent, you know, he's not listening. He's sprinting towards traffic, so I got to go run after him. And I run after him, and I scoop him up in my arms, bring him back to this place of joy and safety so that he can enjoy the playground once again. And, And God, in the same way, eventually stops calling. He eventually stops sending messengers, and he said, I got to go, I got to go get them myself. I got to go run after them myself. And he does, and he shows up in the person of Jesus to chase after us. And what does Jesus experience? On the cross, the ultimate exile, the ultimate judgment, cast out of God's presence and in, in, in life and joy so that you and I would never experience that again, so that he could scoop us up in his arms and bring us back to a place of joy and a place of safety. Who do you know that has loved you like that? that has so utterly committed to you that there is nothing that you can do or say that would ever jeopardize his commitment to you, that he keeps calling and pursuing and running to get you and to bring you back home? Who do you know that loves you like that, that never gives up on you no matter how many times you've given up on him? The prerequisite for enjoying that love is to simply show up. It's that simple. God says, return to me, and I will return to you. That's the promise, and that's an invitation for you this morning. Let me pray. Father, I pray that you would give us the eyes to see the beauty and the glory of your love, the sacrifice of your son, the commitment of your pursuit for us so that we might have the freedom to return home, to show up, knowing that you have been pursuing us all along, knowing that it's it's you that brings us back, knowing that it's you that brings us into this place of joy and safety. This is what we need in the middle of our crisis. I pray that you give us eyes to see your aggressive, relentless pursuit and love. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.